you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode review series, I'm reviewing Monkey Paw Productions' Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access, hosted by Jordan Peele. You can find more of Anthology as well as full episode archives at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Tweet me at ovanthologypod or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing The Blue Scorpion. It's the ninth and penultimate episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it premiered on May 23rd, 2019 on CBS All Access. But before I get into my review of The Blue Scorpion, I do have some pre-review notes and feedback from last week, or... Uh, updates from past episodes, I should say. Uh, first up, um, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I am a big fan of Tom Elliott's The Twilight Zone podcast, as I'm pretty sure every Twilight Zone fan who listens to podcasts is. Um, and what he has done throughout the run of the this new series is he's had uh, listener feedback episodes. So each week he would review the new episode with a guest and then have a listener feedback episode that's all emails and audio files of his listeners just talking about the episodes. And regarding Point of Origin, there was one um, listener feedback on his show that really just kind of blew my mind. Um, his listener, Todd, uh, talked about his feelings on Point of Origin, and at, and at one point he said that he had a theory during the episode that, um, and by the way, I'm going to be spoiling Point of Origin here, um, he said that he had a theory during Point of Origin that the other dimension that Eve and, and everyone was from and had, had vacated to seek refuge in ours, uh, his theory was that the other dimension was actually the dimension where Eye of the Beholder takes place and that the refugees from that dimension are the people who are quote unquote deformed in that reality and that this, that our dimension or the dimension picked depicted in Point of Origin is the place that the society and I, the beholder, sent all of the quote-unquote deformed people. And man, if they had done that, <laughs> if they had gone that route with this episode, it would have made it a lot more, uh, a lot better for me, a lot more palatable. Um, just a much better episode. But unfortunately, they didn't go that route. But I just, I was, I've, I've had that theory in my mind. Um, ever since I listened to that episode. So, uh, kudos to Todd, who's a listener over on the Twilight Zone podcast. And check out Twilight Zone podcast. I mean, Tom Elliott's amazing. Um, also, some things that I learned. <laughs> so, point of origin, the face in the dollhouse that I mentioned before, um, about being super creepy and how it's just like there for like a couple of frames and then, and then they move on to the serial. Um, that face is actually the gremlin from nightmare at 20,000 feet. Um, 
And there was one podcast I pointed out, um, I can't remember which one it was, but someone pointed out that um, it's like the show has has a finite amount of props from the original series, um, and they just keep reusing the same ones, uh, which is kind of hilarious. Hopefully they get more um, in season two. And finally, the last thing about Point of Origin is that I kind of realized through listening other, listening to other people's reviews and conversations about it, that at the end, when William is letting Eve get taken away, it's a, a very big reversal of Anna being taken away early in the episode. That's obvious. But what I didn't connect is that the is the whole like family aspect of it. Like early in the episode, Eve tells Anna that she's family, and she tells her friends that Anna is part of the family and everything. But Anna is different. So when she's taken, Anna doesn't put up a uh, or I'm sorry, Eve doesn't put up a fight. Um, Eve has her family, but when the truth like like he has her established family. Um, and as much as she wants to say that Anna is a part of it, she's, she's not. But when Eve is taken away and her, the truth of her past comes out, um, William doesn't fight for her either because he is now seeing, he's seeing Eve as Eve saw Anna. And I just, I can't believe I didn't connect that. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's a really interesting way to kind of bring, bring that episode, uh, full circle. And then the last piece of pre-review news and notes and everything. Um, this goes back all the way to a traveler. Um, just an Easter egg that I missed the, uh, character of Jacques, um, who was the guy that a traveler talked about having back child support. Um, he, his name is Jacques Turnier, Um, and he shares his name with the director of the original twilight zone, uh, series episode night call so i missed that obviously so i just wanted to circle back and follow up on that um so yeah so that's all of the pre-review notes and everything i have so let's go ahead and dig into blue scorpion okay so plot summary for the blue scorpion Courtesy of CBS All Access is the emergence of the elusive blue scorpion leads anthropology professor Jeff Stork to his most personal research project yet. Uh, let's see. So I'm going to be spoiling the episode, of course. So um, fair warning. Um, spoilers on for the blue scorpion. If you haven't seen it, go check it out on CBS All Access and then come back and listen to my review. So the blue scorpion stars Chris O'Dowd as Jeff Stork, who is uh, a really... Um, I don't want to say prolific actor, but he's he's a well-known actor. He's best known for um, his role on the IT crowd, which is hilarious. Um, and also, of course, his supporting role in Bridesmaids. Um, more recently and more, um, I guess, tailored to the audience of this podcast, um, he was in the absolutely terrible uh, The Cloverfield Paradox um, which I still contend has it's had such an interesting release strategy. Um, they were dumping it on Netflix and then, uh, they decided to just put together a Super Bowl trailer for it. Like, I think that that could be just a brilliant marketing strategy, uh, for Netflix. But anyway, hopefully they do that with good movies or TV shows. Um, anyway, uh, co-starring as Ann Stork is Amy Landiker. Uh, she was in one episode of HBO's horror anthology show, Room 104, which I think is produced by, um... The Duplass Brothers. Um, I'm so glad I didn't have to look that up. Um, the Duplass Brothers. Um, she was also in Doctor Strange and Project Almanac. Project Almanac I never watched, even though I'm vaguely interested in some of the things about it. Uh, 
co-starring as or making an appearance rather as you i'm gonna butcher this i'm so sorry guys uh eulogio cienfuegos uh cienfuegos um he was uh he's uh played by alex uh diakin uh, he was in five episodes of The X-Files and in 2008's X-Files, I Want to Believe film, um, which by the way, just real quick, I, well, I'll get to that in a second. So, um, uh, going through the rest of his credits, he was in four episodes of Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda TV series, which I noticed is on Amazon Prime and like it's got Kevin Sorbo and um, it looks kind of cheesy, but my question is, is it any good? Like, does anyone out there, has anyone out there watched Andromeda and is it worth checking out? Cause Gene Roddenberry, obviously Star Trek is amazing. So I don't, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to waste my time. So is it good? That's my, the question I'm posing the audience this week. Um, and then finally, Alex, uh, Diukin, um, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm sorry. It was in eight episodes, eight episodes, Jesus, of the 1990s revival of The Outer Limits. So that's interesting. So writer for this episode was Glenn Morgan. And I'll just take this mo- this time to announce or say that I uh, have started watching The X-Files on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, man, I'm getting so into that show. <laughs> um, I'm like seven episodes into the first season and I'm just, I'm loving it. I haven't watched it since I was a kid. And I don't even, I don't remember much about it except for the opening theme music and some, some like vague memories of, of plots and everything. Um, but I'm watching it now and I'm just really loving it. So that's awesome. Uh, director for this episode was Craig William McNeil. He directed six episodes of Channel Zero, which I heard really great things about. And I think it was just recently canceled. Um, uh, Channel Zero is a horror anthology show that is, a uh, season-long anthology arcs. Um, so I've heard great things about it, never saw it, it got canceled, so I'm part of the problem. So, once again, spoilers on for the Blue Scorpion, so you have been warned. Uh, my initial thoughts on this episode is that I liked it a lot. Um, it's not quite as heavy-handed as the series has been thus far, and it isn't even making the super, super liberal statements that you would expect it to make with this type of episode. Instead, this episode focuses on character, finally, (laughs) and it comments on how we kind of fetishize objects and seek gratification and power from deadly weapons and and whatnot. So I I really liked the way that it told its story, the way that it delivered its message, and the acting from Chris O'Dowd as well was amazing. Um, So let's dig into my review then. So... I love the opening scene from inside the house as Jeff walks in, like the way the house is lit by natural light for the most part, at least. Um, it's just really stunning. It really puts you into this atmosphere of this. You are transported into this. Um, it, it's almost like a time capsule like this, this living room set, this house set. Um, you get the idea, like the set dressing makes it seem like, okay, this is inhabited by a person who is, living in the past or living in the sixties or, or having, uh, had their glory days in the sixties. In other words, (laughs) um, you can, you can dig deep into that, but also it's just communicating that, okay, this guy, um, 
in like what his 40s is now living with his dad because he as we're gleaning from the telephone call we're overhearing is his marriage is on the rocks and headed toward divorce uh, but anyway so the house is so retro there's a banner for the monterey international pop festival which was a music festival in 1967 according to google and it kind of sets up the my dad is a lifelong hippie line that he tells that Jeff tells the uh, detective. And as I said before, it quickly establishes that Jeff is separated from his wife and headed toward divorce because we're overhearing his conversation with um, his wife on the phone. And as we're getting that information, it's not, again, it's not heavy handed or it's not sloppily written. It's just, it's delivering us that information. And Chris O'Dowd is selling it well because he is, even at this point in the episode, he's saying that he can't afford to go the the uh, divorce route and you know you you believe him and it's just it as the episode progresses it gets more and more uh sad for him and it's just sad that he's fighting for the marriage really he talks about how he has a uh how he's gotten the um the uh divorce not divorce but the couple's counseling like thing going and it's just it's sad to see that he's he's fighting for it um, it's like I said, it's establishing that he's already kind of in dire straits as it is, especially financially. But he's it's also established that he's fighting for the marriage and she is uh, clearly done with it. And it's just a sad dynamic to set us up with. And then it gets even sadder when he finds his father's dead body. And man, I love Chris O'Dowd's performance in this episode. I really do. Um, I wanted to make a stupid joke and I'm going to go ahead and do that because that's what, what <laughs> that's what you guys signed up for. Um, <laughs> uh, when it's established that he's, you know, getting divorced and everything, I just thought it's more like Chris O down on his luck. Am I right? Um, anyway, so, <laughs> uh, that's, I, uh, sorry. So we get the, like, he, he finds his father's dead body. So, um, it's kind of tastefully done or I wouldn't even say tastefully done. It's just, it feels like this shot was like showing the dead body. Um, almost feels like it was kind of made for like network TV and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's, it's very, um, drawn, drawn back. It's, it's very, uh, tame, I guess, or what have you. So it shows like the way that it's shown is that Chris O'Dowd is standing outside of the room and he's looking in and then the camera is, it's either on a reflection into the room or it's from a, from the doorway, but the face is obscured. We just see the, the torso and, and legs of, of Otis's dead body, which, uh, we learn that his father's name is Otis because he calls the police and says that his father's name is Otis when he says that he just found his dead body. And that's when we see that the, the bullet has the name Otis on it and, uh, the name fades away. Um, actually it would have to be the bullet casing. So anyway, um, yeah, so that, that right there is an interesting setup, a very interesting setup and everything, which I'll get to more of the uh, setup and everything here in a minute. But, uh, I just thought that that was really intriguing to kind of hook us in. So the next scene, we see a detective asking Jeff if the blue scorpion is his dad's gun, uh, to which, uh, Jeff says that he, you know, his dad was a lifelong hippie. He didn't have a gun. Um, I think he says he hate, hated guns also. Um, but I do want to just highlight here that, and this could just be my mind playing tricks on me, but let me know what you guys think. Um, it kind of sounds like in the sound design, um, it sounds a lot like the opening theme to Lost is played when 
Jeff is about to answer the question about the Blue Scorpion. I'm going to play a clip here, and then I'm also going to play a clip from uh, just the opening like theme of Lost, and you guys can kind of decide there. Uh, here, here we go. We all know what this is. Does this belong to your father? Is it registered to him? Look, Mr. Stork, I know this is certainly upsetting. We'll be on our way if you can tell me if this is your father's gun. No. No way. It's not. So I don't know. Am, am I crazy or did I hear that right? Um, I could just be crazy. I don't know. So the detective is asking a lot of questions and Jeff is just done with it. He doesn't want to hear it. And this was an interesting, interesting, uh, scene because it's kind of played for laughs in a way or not necessarily laughs. It's kind of played to kind of a comedic slant because like up until the point where Jeff, uh, kind of gets a little comic-y, um, this is a very kind of somber scene, very relatable scene. Like Jeff is very clear that he just wants to do it another time because his dad just, just killed himself and it's completely reasonable and everything. I like kind of the friendliness that the, the, uh, the detective has, I guess friendliness is the closest word I would have for it. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily the right word, but, uh, he's just kind of there and he's, he's, you know, He's, he says like, you know, this is kind of standard operating procedure. We're, we're no, we know what likely happened here. We just need to go through the steps. But, um, <laughs> uh, Jeff says that his father basically just shot himself right in front of him. And the detective, uh, goes full Phil from not all men. And he's like, actually it would have been last night. Um, <laughs> it just reminded me of the character of Phil from Not All Men, the kind of know-it-all character who, uh, was called out for mansplaining and everything. Um, I just thought that was kind of funny, but Jeff's reaction to that, Chris O'Dowd's reaction to that by saying, him saying, um, him saying like, yeah, I know, I know. I just said it's basically, basically means basically. Um, I just, I love Chris O'Dowd in those types of moments where he is flustered and kind of goofy, but in a serious situation. Um, it's a very interesting kind of tightrope for him to walk. And I think that he pulled it off really well. Um, and the comic relief there was pretty fun. Um, so the detective hands him the suicide note and the suicide note just says, I love him more than you. And he just sits with that and he doesn't know what's going on. We don't know what the hell he means. Um, it's just, it's an interesting thing to bring us into the narration, which we get from Jordan Peele. Here's the opening narration for The Blue Scorpion. Here sits Professor Jeffrey Mingus Stork, a man who holds a doctorate in anthropology, but possesses little true knowledge of himself. Today, Professor Stork is surrounded by the many familiar artifacts that shaped his father's life, and the one unknown object that ended it. As a scientist, he's about to embark on his darkest research project yet. His conclusion will lie somewhere between the barrel of a gun and the outer regions of the Twilight Zone. So a couple things about this opening narration. One, uh, Jeff's full name is Jeff Mingus Stork. Um, what an interesting character name. Like really, like I just, I really like that character name. I don't know that I've ever heard the name Mingus. Um, 
Oh, maybe there was a Mingus in like Boy Meets World or something. But I think that's the only time I've ever heard the name Mingus. I just like the the way that the the full name uh falls off the tongue. Jeff Mingle or Jeff Mingus Stork. Um I like that. So the other part about it is that um Jordan Peele says uh he's a man who holds a doctorate in anthropology but possesses little true knowledge about himself. And that's reminiscent of Nightmare and Nightmare at 30,000 Feet's closing narration where he talks about Justin Sanderson was an investigative journalist who didn't want to investigate himself. And that's fine. It's fine. The kind of, I don't know if there's really a correlation between the two episodes. Um, but I'm inclined to think the more, I'm inclined to take the more cynical route in thinking that maybe this is just another example of this iteration of the Twilight Zone kind of following a formula when it uh, comes to the opening and closing narrations. But I liked the opening narration for this episode pretty, pretty well. So after the opening theme music, we get a, series of shots of Jeff kind of lost and alone in his dad in his dad's house. And that's kind of cross cut with um, his eulogy to his father at um, a small kind of funeral service at a lake. And he mentions, uh, he says, my dad fell in love with the Cayuga um, at some point. And then he goes on, but that's a reference to Cayuga productions, um, which was itself named after uh, Lake Cayuga, um, which Rod Sterling was a huge fan of. Um, that's where his family had a summer home, apparently, um, at Cayuga Lake, um, which was, is one of, uh, New York's Finger Lakes. It's about, uh, one hour northwest of where Rod Sterling grew up. And yeah, um, and that just makes me think of the office. Uh, people, people get lost up in the Finger Lakes. Um, anyway, um, so that was an interesting, a nice little nod to Serling and to the production company that had the Twilight Zone, uh, cause Cayuga Productions was, uh, named when, uh, Serling was starting the Twilight Zone and then it was eventually dissolved after the series was ended. So Cayuga Productions' only production was the Twilight Zone and, uh, he started a new production company or named a new production company, uh, for his next show, The Loner. Um, I think it was Interlaken Productions, which was uh, the town that their their summer house was in, I think. Um, anyway, so Jeff is eulogizing his father. And it feels really sweet, but then, like, it's a very sweet and somber eulogy. And he's kind of talking about how his father was a good man and how he, like, kind of telling little side stories about his father and uh, throughout his life. But then it kind of, Turn, then he kind of turns it around a little bit to be kind of about him and his insecurity over the death in the note. Uh, he talks about like how his father never had, um, had never got a divorce, never lost his love or something like that. Um, and then he kind of just starts talking to himself and he says, um, who did you love more than me? Um, and in, and it's just a really interesting kind of hint at the mental fragility of Jeff. Um, so back at the house, he finds the blue scorpion safe and the holes that are on top of the box are kind of a nice touch. It kind of, um, is seeding the idea of, of there being light on the blue scorpion, uh, because the blue scorpion is afraid of the dark. Um, and it's really cool. Just imagery like the heart or the, the box is kind of shaped like a heart, but it's kind of dark and, and black a little bit. And, um, I think it was black at least. And in that same scene, Jeff is wearing a shirt that's kind of tie dye and has a red heart in the center of it. So it's an interesting juxtaposition, 
of that. And seeing the kind of redlining in inside the safe is uh, a really nice touch. Like the whole, the, this episode really has some really good set design and really good set dressing and everything. It's just, it was very visually appealing. So Jeff is kind of looking around and he finds the bullet with his name on it. And again, that's just a really intriguing concept for an episode and for basically a magic object episode of the Twilight Zone. And by showing this um, bullet or finding him finding the bullet with his name on it, it kind of feels like the gun is kind of luring him in a way. Um, at this point, it kind of seems like, okay, he has a bullet with his name on it. The bullet is meant for him. And the gun is kind of seducing him into committing suicide. Um, that's the intention or the idea that you get there. And it feels like it's being communicated to Jeff through emotions. Like Jeff, by looking at this and looking at this bullet knows that knows what the implication is, that that's what it's meant for. And I think that that's more a reflection of Jeff's mental state than it is the power of the blue scorpion. Because Jeff's mental state, he's down on his luck, he's, he's Chris O down on his luck, and he is at his lowest point, really. And I think that maybe the idea of him committing suicide, even though it's not really expressed here in, in this scene particular, in particular, it's kind of what I'm kind of putting into the scene um, on my own, but it kind of seems it, it tracks, it tracks strongly that he would be con- contemplating suicide and he would think that the bullet with his name on it is a signal that he should commit suicide because that's the only alternative. And I like that as kind of a long con on the blue scorpions part, because as we'll see the next day, uh, Jeff passes by a ton of different Jeffs. <laughs> um, I'm going to go ahead and play a clip of this and then let's count how many Jeffs there are. Good morning, Jeff. Yo, Jeff, what's up? All good. How about you, Jeff? Just more, right? Oh my god, Jeff. Such a Jeff. Jeff! Hey, Jeff. Six different Jeffs in a very short span of time. So the woman saying, good morning, Jeff. A uh, kid walking down the steps saying, hey, Jeff, what's up? A uh, friend's response is, I'm good. How about you, Jeff? Two girls looking on a phone. Oh, God, Jeff. Uh, sees a kid with Jeff on the back of his soccer jersey or whatever it is. And a kid yelling for Jeff, a dog. And the Jeff scene is in pretty sharp contrast to the eulogy scene. <laughs> um, it brings us into a slightly more surreal world. And... It's interesting because it's another comparison that I'm going to draw to Not All Men because this scene reminds me a lot of the scene in Not All Men when Annie is leaving yoga and sees the men behaving aggressively and really out of character and, uh, frankly, ridiculously. And I feel like the Blue Scorpion, at least somewhat, does what I wished Not not All Men did in that scene. Um, I feel like this scene of all the Jeffs in rapid succession is that Jeff has a preoccupation um, with hearing and seeing his name everywhere. And I feel like that preoccupation is because his name is on the bullet. Like, this could be interpreted as Jeff's mind protecting him. Like, is he hallucinating all of the Jeffs so that he doesn't think that the bullet is meant for him? Like, is this a defense mechanism that he is thinking that, oh, I found a bullet with my name on it and I'm in a very dark place in my life. Um, I should conjure up this... um, hallucination that everyone's named Jeff. So I at least can turn it around to target someone else. Um, so I, I don't know if it's supposed to be Jeff's mind protecting him, but that's, that's a stretch. I'll, I'll admit that. Or 
is the blue scorpion making him hear and see his name everywhere to kind of goad him into keeping the gun. Like the blue scorpion is tempting him and trying to get its hooks in him even before the blue scorpion is necessarily in his possession um, at this point. And it, it kind of can be read either way. And I'm sure that there are more clear and obvious ways that it can be read, but those are the two ways that my mind kind of went for it. And it kind of reminds me of, like I said, it reminds me of that scene in not all men, because in the, in not all men, I remember saying like in my review that I wish that that would have been, or that scene where Annie is seeing all of the aggressive men is a reflection of her internalizing the trauma that she suffered the night before. And this is the same with Jeff. He is kind of internalizing or um, noticing his, his senses are heightened uh, to the different names around him or the same name all around him because he has literally a bullet with that name on it. And he is kind of coming to a point where he's at a choice, a fork in the road that he'll come to later um, as to whether he needs, whether he is wanting to kill himself or kill others. Um, yeah, so I just, I kind of thought that was an interesting connection between the blue scorpion and not all men. So after this, Jeff drives to Anne's house to pick up his mail and he goes into his ex-wife's house and she pulls a gun on him and she says that there have been burglaries in the neighborhood and, and she's, she's living there alone now. So she wants to be, uh, she wants to be safe. And it's interesting because she doesn't know how to put the safety on. And like she says, she doesn't remember. She's stressed out and everything. It's a very heightened, stressful thing. And this is a part where the episode does such a great job. And maybe it's just my own personal bias in this, in this thing. And I'll talk in more length uh, about this later. But I kind of wonder if this is just a, a subtle statement about gun ownership and everything. Like, okay, this woman is needs... Uh, feels that she needs a gun for home protection. It's a very obvious or not obvious, but a very um, understandable kind of thing. Like it's not, she's not fetishizing the gun. She's not objectifying the gun. She's not um, looking at it through uh, like as, as something larger than life. She just simply believes that, Hey, there have been home invasions. I now live alone. I need something to protect myself which is perfectly in line with, with, you know, normal behavior. <laughs> like that's perfectly acceptable and understandable, but she doesn't know how to operate the gun. Like she is in such a stressful situation and she's, she's so nervous and everything that she forgets how to put the safety on. And I think that's a subtle kind of not dig, but kind of a subtle commentary on that argument of like, well, the second amendment should be upheld or people should respect the second amendment because you need it for your own protection and everything. And everyone should have a gun because, uh, everyone should be safe and everything. It's like, okay, well, if they're not properly trained with a gun or they don't know what they're doing or they're not like, not ever just because it's in the second amendment doesn't mean that everyone needs a gun or should have a gun. Um, but I don't know. I, I digress, but I just thought that that was an interesting potential, an interesting kind of potential, um, commentary there so she gives him the package that the police dropped off it's the gun it's the blue scorpion and she mentions that he could sell it and i love the line where jeff's like i'm not going to make money off my dad's suicide um because yeah that makes sense it's <laughs> uh yeah uh it's it makes sense like it tracks well and um the kind of way that Chris O'Dowd says the line kind of feels like obviously, well, obviously he's deep in grief and confused and, and at a low point in his life and everything, but it's just, he has this kind of, um, 
not nobility, but he has this sense of duty or sense of respect for his for his father that he's not going to you know make money off of his dad's suicide, as he says. Um, that's when she says that she's going to need that he's going to need the money because she got a lawyer. And at, on one hand, it's kind of messed up that she would go for the, for the divorce route right now, right after he like after. Jeff just lost his dad, but she does say that she's fallen in love with someone. So it, it makes sense. Like she has, and it also just demonstrated by the opening scene with the phone call that we overhear. She's clearly moved on, uh, to a point where, uh, she's moved on farther than Jeff has. Jeff is still holding out hope that, you know, they can salvage the marriage, but it's clear that she's moved on and she wants a clean break. Um, and the fact that she's fallen in love with someone is the catalyst that, you know, pushes her toward, you know, getting a lawyer and actually going through with the divorce. Um, however, the fact that she's, uh, like, like all that's sad for Jeff. I, I feel bad for Jeff. But when she says that the other man's name is Jeff, it feels so weird <laughs> that she's giving him that information. Um, I just, I just thought that that was kind of sloppy or kind of superfluous just to kind of, um, it it made it gave me the sense that the episode feels really preoccupied with giving us countless targets for Jeff. Um because in my eyes in this at this point in the episode, all of these Jeffs that we see and hear about are potential targets for the bullet. Like this bullet has their name on it, and it's either going to come down to killing our Jeff or a Jeff that is in his life. And that's where this episode of The Twilight Zone um kind of goes the not so subtle route because they make everyone named Jeff and it's just it's I don't know it's kind of tiring I guess and the fact that she says that oh his name's Jeff is just so superfluous and not needed um but I feel like that could have been worked in because if she had said like I don't know if if there had been a beat like when she said that she fell in love with someone if there had been a longer beat a longer silence a longer awkward pause um and then maybe she she would break the break the silence or try to break the tension by saying like oh his name's Jeff, um, that could have worked in a way but here it just doesn't really work for me. So Jeff opens the package and he examines the gun. Uh, he's back home by the way and he's he's looking at it he's examining it and it's you don't quite get the sense that he's you know gonna kind of fall in love with it in a certain certain way but he is very intrigued by it and it's interesting that he drops the clip while he's um kind of looking at it in in a slight trance like he drops the clip and it kind of pulls him out of it and i thought that was really interesting he's like it's the seduction of of jeff toward the blue scorpion and the only thing that kind of tore him away from it, it uh, was, was him dropping the clip. And it kind of reminds me in a sense of like the, the Lord of the Rings and, and the one ring to rule them all and everything like the kind of way that it is influencing the possessor of it and how it's um, kind of has a life of its own. It's very um, evocative of that. So he looks at the suicide note and he is wondering, he's saying, am I him or am I you? And I just, like, I think that the grief that Jeff is going through throughout this episode is probably the episode's biggest strength for me. And Chris O'Dowd is so great. Jeff is filled with questions about his father while also going through the roughest time in his life personally. And Chris O'Dowd does such a great job of demonstrating that and making him such a, uh, kind of a relatable kind of everyman character. He is, he is, the type of character that the Twilight Zone is built around. He is this ordinary person experiencing this extraordinary 
kind of circumstance and how like the episode is revolving around how he works through that extraordinary circumstance and whether or not he comes out on top or comes out on top or is destroyed by the twilight zone. Um, and I don't know, like that's just what's so appealing to me about this episode. Jeff is at such a low point in his life. And as he's going through it, he bonds with a gun and like this, that's what this episode's all about. The episode is about the fetishization of an in- inanimate or deadly objects. And the episode is wonderfully demonstrating how someone who has lost so much can still function in his everyday life while flirting with the unthinkable. And we don't even need to see him or, or we don't need to be told that he's flirting with, you know, the idea of like, you know, succumbing to the power of the blue scorpion or what have you, because it's, it's demonstrated so well through his actions in his, uh, solitary moments. And it's just, it's, it's really strongly written. Um, and as we'll see in a bit, Jeff derives power from the blue scorpion. And what I just respect about this episode is that gun ownership is such a huge hot button issue these days. And gun violence is horrific. It's a horrific epidemic in our society. But what the blue scorpion does so well is to show the human obsession with firearms in a really unique way. Um, and I just, I, I really appreciate this episode for that, for that reason. So moving along, Jeff calls the gun salesman who's voiced by James Morrison, who was, I know him best from, uh, 24. Um, he played Bill Buchanan for a handful of seasons. Um, and, I feel like the gun salesman is a good counter to the kind of romanticization of firearms that the episode is uh, kind of revolving around. Like the gun salesman on the phone is very friendly, polite, informative, but he's also part of that romanticization um, of firearms motif a little bit because he buys into the myth of the blue scorpion as if it's fact. Like he tells him uh, to, you know, uh, he tells him about the legend and he says that he you know, needs to make sure that, uh, there's light because the blue scorpion is afraid of the dark. So the gun salesman asks for the serial number and that's where we get our 1015 for the episode. One of two 1015s I found, um, the serial number is 101559. So there's our 1015 and bonus. We get a 59, which is the year the show premiered. And, uh, the gun salesman like, is very impressed that it's the blue scorpion. He says that the legend is you don't find it, it finds you. And he says that he could probably get 25 to 50,000 for it. So that's when Jeff says that he, quote, just wants to get the bloody thing out of his life. And that's when the gun fires on the table. And this was such a cool scene, um, such a cool sequence there because it shows that the blue scorpion has a mind of its own and is capable of controlling itself. Um, kind of Toy Story style. Um, and it shows that the Blue Scorpion wants Jeff to keep it. And I just, again, I just love the way that it's shot, no pun intended. Uh, the gun fires the camera, which is kind of situated on the table. It's kind of like locked in on the table uh, with a gun directly in the center of the frame. Like when the gun goes off, like the it's it's kind of like a kind of like Mythbusters type of thing, like a science kind of demonstration show because the it's like the camera is connected to the table and when the when the when the gun fires uh everything shakes and everything it's just it's a really cool um sequence and you can hear the salesman freaking out with concern uh which again kind of goes into what i said about him being kind of a nice counter to the kind of idea of fetishization of of inanimate objects 
so the salesman tells him that the legend is that the blue scorpion is afraid of the dark, so he needs to keep, you know, uh, light on it. And he mentions that, uh, he tells him, like, you can just send all your information to me, give me a picture and everything, and I'll do everything on my end. And then that's when he reveals that his name is Bob Jeff, which, of course... Um, and he also says that he's located in Earliesville, Virginia. And that's kind of a weird callback because if you remember in my review of replay, there's a sign, uh, that's very prominently displayed throughout the episode for Earliesville, Virginia, um, throughout the episode replay. And what I kind of deduced from, with the help of one of my uh, listeners, uh, tweeting me about it was that Earliesville, Virginia was close in proximity to Charlottesville, um, where the Unite the Right, oh God, my voice keeps cracking in these episodes, I'm sorry. Uh, the Unite the Right rally and, you know, horrible event happened. Um, so I thought that was kind of a weird callback for this episode. Um, I don't know if it's just, it's just, I don't know if it's just that they saw that there was an Earliesville sign and they were like, hey, let's just throw in an Earliesville reference because why not? Um, I don't know how I feel about that. It's just, it's a weird kind of callback. So Jeff puts the gun away, guns, puts the gun away, but turns on the light for it. And that's kind of his, he's starting to kind of very slowly get hooked into it. So the next scene is Jeff meeting with his student who's kind of complaining about her research project and she's expressing concern over it because it's about animism which she talks about how animism is a religious idea that every object has a soul and that her taking that on as a research project is taking over her life in uh, inconvenient ways. Like she basically it boils down to that, to her thinking that her shoes are BFFs. Um, so I don't know. It's an interesting way to give us some more context for Jeff's experience in a weird way. I, I don't know. It's not heavy handed or too exposition heavy. It's just some good information to have. And as she's talking, he's in a whole other world. And, um, it's just interesting, uh, interesting way to kind of correlate or, or, uh, um, anchor the story of Jeff being consumed by this gun, uh, to the w- real world or whatever the Twilight Zone wants to, uh, pretend to be the real world. Um, so he does just so that we don't have any, um, um, dangling plot holes or anything or, or, uh, unresolved uh plot threads jeff lets her pick a new project and i do i do like the scene where she's leaving his office and she's like oh thank you my shoes thank you too i i thought that was very charming and and uh i i like that kind of uh bit of comedy in this episode so uh as she's leaving the room jeff is immediately met at the door by ann's attorney and the dude's name is jeff also which is uh you know, pretty obvious at this point. Um, and I like that our Jeff is annoyed by that. And so the lawyer gives him his card and that's where we get another 1015 reference. Uh, the 1015 is in the address of the law firm. And, uh, I noticed that it's in Rochester, Rochester, New York. I was surprised that they didn't throw in a Binghamton reference here or anywhere in this episode. Um, but oh, well, (laughs) So Jeff tells him that his father just died and he didn't have a will, so the estate is all messed up. To which lawyer Jeff says, well, if any of that estate is left to you, half of it now belongs to Anne. And man, what a prick. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, this is just kicking the, kicking our Jeff while he's down. And, um, it's just kind of, it's a good, it's a good, um, kind of thread to follow up on because, 
uh, Jeff is kind of getting more and more seduced by the blue scorpion. And as everything kind of continues to crumble around him and makes his susceptibility toward the, toward the gun a lot easier for him to, to handle. Um, and I did, I did really appreciate her, or I thought it was kind of ominous the way that, uh, the lawyer on the other side of the door after Jeff kind of slams the door in his face says, I can make all your troubles go away. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And it's also kind of, um, an interesting piece of, I guess, foreshadowing, um, because the gun is kind of taking on that role in Jeff's life of something that can take all of his problems away. Um, eventually. So he gets another call, um, from the gun salesman as he's kind of hanging out at his, at his home. And the gun salesman says that there's, Oh no, no, no. I think this is in, in his office. I'm sorry. Um, cause he booked, he looks at the bullet and takes the gun, uh, or takes the gun salesman's call. So, uh, the gun salesman says that he's, that there's only been seven owners, including you. And then he says that he can sell it, uh, 400,000, but Jeff is not really into that. So cut to Jeff getting high, listening to white rabbit by Jefferson airplane in his house. Uh, he starts playing with the blue scorpion in the scene. And this is where the episode gets a little disturbing. Um, cause he's starting to feel the power of it and he's being seduced by this gun. And at this point, I don't know if he's considering suicide as he's kind of like letting his hand kind of wander and, and kind of like kind of in a weird trance. Um, I don't know if he's considering suicide in this moment or if he's seeking control of his life. Um, but either way, he was in a very deep trance and that much is, is absolutely true. Um, and it's just, it's so, disturbing to see the way that he's so hypnotized by this object. Um, so after he kind of snaps out of it, the light turns on in his dad's room and that's when he goes in and he sees a vision of, and I'm going to butcher this again, Eulogio Cienfuegos. Um, and it's kind of a bizarre scene. Uh, Jeff thinks that he's hallucinating and, uh, uh, Cienfuegos says the pistol wants to help end your troubles, which is, like I said, it's another interesting kind of, um, there are multiple people in Jeff's life who's, who are saying that they want to help end his troubles. Um, and it's just kind of, kind of weird that, you know, one's a lawyer, one's a gun. Um, so I don't know. And at this point it's like, okay, the gun is trying to get him to kill himself. Like this much is, is clear to me in a sense, at least in this moment, this was my read on it. Um, and it's just, it's so, the way that it's building, like the tension in this episode is really interesting to me because it's, it's getting to a point of uh slight intensity and, um, unpredictability even. So next scene is the next day, Jeff goes to the gun range to shoot the gun and destroy his bullet, which is the sensible thing to do. And Easter egg here, uh, a most unusual camera from season two, um, is seen playing on the TV in the top left corner when Jeff enters. And that led me to question, um, is that the first time an episode of the twilight zone is shown in an episode of the twilight zone? Um, obviously I have no idea given the conceit of this podcast is me going through the twilight zone as a first time viewer. Um, and also, um, <laughs> spoiler for the next episode, it's, uh, it, this won't be the last time that we have something like that. Um, so Jeff tells the guy at the counter that he just wants to fire the gun once. And that kind of piques the guy's interest. He's like, why just once? Why not just sell it? Um, 
and he's he just explains that he just needs to get rid of this bullet. And Chris O'Dowd is just really good in this episode. Again, he plays Jeff as someone who is aware how of how ridiculous the situation is, but he has such a level of sincerity in every single line that he delivers that you totally sympathize sympathize with him, even though he is being seduced by this weird demonic object, and he is acting bizarre in weird ways. So he shows um, the the clerks uh, the bullet, and he says that ever since I came into the possession of the gun, weird stuff has been happening, and he talks about all the Jeffs and everything, and he's just like, I, I, I understand that Jeff's a real, uh, a, a common name, but that it's Jeff, uh, Jeff every day, that's weird. Um, that's when the other clerk says, like, well, his name is Jeff, pointing to the other guy, or the guy uh, behind the counter, and like, Okay, fine. That's that's okay. Whatever. So I want to talk about the range scene um, in particular. I'm going to play a clip here in a second, but this is the scene where Jeff succumbs to the charms of the blue scorpion. Like he goes full full tilt into the blue scorpion's uh, control. And I want to highlight the score in this scene. It is so beautiful and haunting. Um, it's just on a whole other level from maybe the, all of the music throughout the entire season, uh, save for, uh, Six Degrees of Freedom, because that episode was, uh, great. The score in that episode was great. Um, but this, the, uh, the score that's played while he is firing the gun is a close second to the score that is played when the, uh, uh, Bradbury heavy mission uh, gets lift off um, in six degrees of freedom. So here's a clip of Jeff uh, firing the gun at the range with a beautiful score laid under it. So yeah, so the score in the scene is just beautiful. I, I love the score in this in this moment. And Jeff is just ridiculous as he gets more and more into firing the gun, and he is succumbing to the romantic nature of gun ownership and fetishization. Um, and just the goofy way that he is, for lack of a better word, playing with the gun. Like he, he's he's it's very much inappropriate the way that he's firing the gun in the range. Um. It suits his character, though, because he is someone who is not um, a gun person, and he is succumbing to the uh, the pull, the emotional pull of the gun, and of course he's going to behave in a bizarre manner with it. Um, so this is where the episode really runs with its theme of romanticizing or fetishizing objects. Uh, the kind of overall theme of being deriving, like the way people de- derive purpose, happiness, and power out of an inanimate thing. And in a broad sense, you could say that it's commenting, maybe tangentially, on how people let interests, hobbies, ideolo- ideologies uh, consume them to the point that it's part of their personality. Like, that may be a stretch, and I'm, I'm sure it is. It's just, that's the kind of vibe that I, that I got off of it, that um, as people become more and more deeply entrenched in their interests or hobbies or what have you, any of those things that I, those broad, uh, things that I just said, um, it just consumes a bigger part of their life and that becomes part of their personality. Now the episode doesn't go down that route with this, with Jeff, with a gun, but it's kind of interesting how protective he is of it. It's kind of like it's, he's, 
protective of it as an identity um, to an extent. And again, I may be stretching and that's probably putting more into the episode than what's there, but that's a slight vibe that I got off of it. And so after he's done firing the gun in the range, the only bullet bullet that's left is the Jeff bullet, to which he says, uh, you'll never hurt me. And I think he kisses the bullet. Um, and that's showing that Jeff's kind of seduction is complete. He is into the the gun. He is he's overcome with uh he's possessed by the gun to a certain extent. So the next scene is Jeff walking down the hall. I think it's at school, yeah. Um and we get um a guy in frame for a couple seconds that resembles Serling. More on that next time. Uh, Jeff puts the blue scorpion in his desk drawer on a cloth with a flashlight on next to it. And he's a little bit more elated in this scene. Like the gun gives him purpose, peace, and this kind of faux happiness. Um, and I think that that says a lot about our culture, our, the way that uh, certain people will take something uh, like I said, it, it kind of corroborates my weak ass, uh, connection that I just made about identity and everything. But, um, the sense of, like, like I said, the sense of purpose and peace and fake happiness that comes with putting more, putting more weight on an object than, than what you, uh, should give it. Um, it's just, it's kind of becomes part of your identity and everything. And it's like, as it consumes more of your life, it becomes a bigger part of your life. And, uh, that's not healthy. So Jeff meets with Anne and the lawyer and he sees that the other Jeff is in the hallway. I think at this time, Anne and Jeff are holding hands and the lawyer says like, um, he, he starts off by saying like, are you sure that you don't want representation here? Cause this can get kind of messy. And Jeff says, I'm at peace. I'm tranquil, tranquil. And then he also sees, you see, I also have a friend. And I thought at that moment that he was going to shoot them. Like I mentioned in the not all men, uh, review that at the end of it, you hear, um, a news piece over the, over on TV saying that there was a, a mass shooting or a shooting that a white man, or I don't know if they clarify that it was a white man. I think they just had a man, uh, did like the, a man shot up something. And I thought that that was, you know, leading towards something in this episode. And I'm glad that it didn't go that route, but I really thought in this moment that he was going to shoot them in the room. Um, and so they're kind of divvying up their, uh, shared belongings and everything for the divorce. And, uh, I just want to mention, like, there, there's a, the big point of contention, like, the, really the one point that they even show in the, in the episode is that Anne wants this base that Jeff's father had. And the lawyer specifies that, well, the Jeff was, or the Jeff, the base was played at certain venues with certain, um, musicians. So, uh, so Anne wants it or whatever. And I thought that, that was pretty messed up. Like, man, the dude just lost his dad and you want to take his base. Like, I, I don't know. Um, that was just, man, I, I just thought that, that was kind of messed up. Um, it didn't, not, it didn't negatively, um, impact the episode or anything. I just thought that, man, that's such a shitty thing to do to, uh, your ex-husband who just lost his father. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I was trying to make a stupid joke, but basically, like, I mean, I'm sure that Jeff's dad had plenty of bass guitars and everything, but, you know, it sounds, from the sound of it, it sounds like this was his ace of bass. Um, sorry. Uh, I saw a sign there. Anyway, um, things get heated and Jeff starts to cause a commotion, and I'm gonna play a clip of that here. Fuck off me! Ah! 
Let me get out of here. Okay, can I can I do that? Can I have it all, man? Just fucking have it all. Just take everything. Except the blue scorpion. You can have it all and shove it up your arse! Escort him out. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Before anyone gets hurt. Just go, 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 go. I love him more than I ever loved you. So Jeff says, uh, have it all, have it all, Annie, uh, except the blue scorpion, or have it all in, uh, except the blue scorpion. And he, like he said, like these are, there are three things in here. He says that, and then he says, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go before anyone gets hurt. And he screams, I love him more than I ever loved you. And I feel like that line in particular is unearned really it's it's kind of weird and out of place and awkward really even though i did just mention that jeff is a character who is um sort of eccentric he's kind of goofy um as it as evident in the shooting range scene but i don't know just like the the whole i love him more than i ever loved you um line is kind of, feels kind of forced in as a as a kind of forced callback to the suicide note or to the note that's found like i feel like the episode never really pays that off except for maybe the, um, the hallucination scene, I guess kind of, kind of pays, uh, pays a certain, uh, payoff to that, to that line in the, uh, suicide note. But I just feel like here it's just unearned. I feel, it feels like there, it's another case of the episode or the show kind of doubling down on something to kind of make something connect in a way that it's, uh, without it just doesn't need to. And then also, so like, um, the have it all in, have it all except the blue scorpion. That's just showing that he is, you know, he is now concerned. Like this is the most important thing in his life is this gun. Um, and he's not himself really. And it's, uh, it's almost like some, uh, meteors drop down, uh, near him. Um, or maybe not since they don't do anything, but, um, Anyway, and then he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to go before anyone gets hurt. And that is a very important line because it is something that is demonstrating that he is, he is not in control of his actions or he's, at least at this point, he's aware that he's not in control of his actions. And that's kind of seeding this kind of unpredictability of what is he going to do at the end of this episode. So he's back at his dad's house, phones ringing, gun salesman wants to get the sale done, wants to get the sale done. Uh, Jeff's not interested in selling it at all. And he throws the phone away. Um, I did like that the, the gun salesman on the phone is like, he's, he's kind of pushing him about the sale. And then when he throws the phone, you just hear the salesman say like, Jeff, you seem busy. I'll check with you tomorrow. I don't know. It just, I got a kick out of that or I got a chuckle out of it. It was just, it's so weird. Like it doesn't land for me in, in a sense, but just seeing that was just really, uh, or like hearing that was, was kind of a, a fun button on the scene, I guess. So the episode gets more disturbing as Jeff is now sleeping with a gun near him and like he can't sleep. He gets up and he starts dry firing it around the house in action poses, uh, which to this, I say Christo dad for bond, just throwing that out there. Um, so he says the dirty hairy line, like, like, um, you gotta think, did you, did I fire five shots or six? um, and that's just showcasing that Jeff is getting more and more deranged. And it's just very disturbing. Um, and it gets even more disturbing when he points it out the window at the neighbor. And at this point, it's like Jeff has nothing left. He either doesn't value human life or the blue scorpion is overtaking him to the point that he is kind of 
curious about what would happen or um, he's just kind of overcome with this power that he has, that he has no other control in his life. Um, so what would it be like to take control and take someone's life? It's an, it's an interesting kind of fork in the road because after that he points it at his reflection. So that's just kind of setting the stage that it's one or the other. He's either going to go on a massacre, kill, like kill someone or he's going to kill himself. Um, and just, I don't know, the imagery in these scenes with Jeff and the gun is just really unsettling to me. And it kind of drives home the point of the episode really well. And so the next scene, like we're getting close to the end. He, uh, he's parked outside of Anne's house and he's kind of staring at the window and it's so creepy because he's, he says, Oh, you think you love her, but you'll never know real love. And it's just disturbing that he's possibly planning on killing Anne's Jeff. Um, and at that moment, it's kind of seems like he was determined that, that, uh, that, that he is that, Anne's Jeff is the Jeff that the bullet is meant for. Um, but then, just then, uh, he's attacked in his car, and a scuffle ensues, the gun fires, and the assailant is killed. And it's the guy who's been prowling the area, and his name is also Jeff. Um, so first of all, I love the scene where the police come, and just the red and, red and blue lights in the night look so cool. Um, but I want to mention that uh, one of the failings of this episode, or one of the... One of the one of the things that didn't quite work as well in this episode is that I wish that they would have downplayed the Jeff thing. Like, I wish that they would have had, like, okay, the lawyer's name's Jeff, the boyfriend's name's Jeff, and just be that. Um, and just, like, maybe, maybe have, like, maybe have the gun salesman just say his name's Jeffrey or something, and then that's it. But having all the other Jeffs and everything just makes it seem like, okay, yeah, the guy who's breaking into homes is also named Jeff. Like, if they had downplayed that, like, the the overuse of Jeff throughout it and just had a couple here and there, um, and then just had that reveal at the end that, like, oh, his name is Jeff also. Um, I feel like that would have went a lot farther. Like, that would have taken the episode a lot farther and, and kind of hit it, uh, have it hit home a little harder. But, um, since we had all of those Jeffs throughout the episode, it kind of just lessens that reveal at the end. Um, again, it's another example of this show doubling and tripling down on something when it should kind of take a, take a few steps back and let it breathe and kind of let it be. Um, I really hope that they show more restraint in season two, because I think that they're, uh, they're overdoing it of, of these things is kind of one of the, one of the big faults of the episode for or the season for me. So after the shooting and after all of that, um, we get a quick shot of a newspaper clipping and I went ahead and paused it here and I have a lot to say. Like, this is where I'm going to kind of vomit on the podcast um, <laughs> or word vomit or whatever. So the newspaper clipping that's talking about it, um, talking about what happened. It hails, um, Jeff as a hero. Um, and I'm going to quote it here. So quote, he was a good guy with a gun in the right place at the right time. Police officer Stewart said in a statement yesterday to the examiner, quote, we're very grateful. Professor Stork had a firearm on him and was able to protect him in his neighborhood and this neighborhood that had been terrorized for weeks on end. So this was such an interesting, um, part of the episode for me. I take that to be a kind of subtle dig at gun enthusiasts' argument about the Second Amendment for personal protection. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but then again, it was also kind of seeded with the scene with Anne 
in the house with the gun early in the episode. But given the context, I think there's really something here. Like, Jeff was deranged and was there presumably to consider murdering his ex-wife's lover because the name was engraved on the on the bullet. Yet, he's hailed as a hero for having a gun at the right time and right place because... I don't know. It just, there, no, no one wants to talk about the context of it, or there's no way of knowing the context of it or his mental state, uh, and everything. So I'm not a gun person. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I'm not a gun person, but I mean, if you want to have a gun or if it's a hobby of yours or whatever, that's great. But there should, I don't know, be regulations about who can have a gun because they are manufactured with the purpose of killing things. Um, it's just, it's like every time there's a mass shooting, there's always the same, talking points that come up and it's aggravating and everything. I just think that, you know, we like my analogy and it's just, I don't, I, whatever. Um, is that, you know, we take tests to be able to drive a car illegally. Like we should, you know, take a class or take a, take, take a test or something to be able to have firearms and everything like that's just, it's fucking, it's common sense. Like we drive cars that are capable of murdering people if we wanted to make them murder people. Um, but we know we need to learn how to operate it before we can even get behind the wheel without the threat of being, you know, uh, ticketed or fined or arrested in some cases if we're, you know, drunk or whatever. Um, I just think that the same rules should apply to handling firearms that are by design supposed supposed to inflict damage and death on living things like that's what they're manufactured for um like no one makes a gun just so that they can go to the store and come and come home like it's just it's made to shoot things uh, anyway uh, anyway I, I i have a hard time articulating that just i have a lot of feelings about that and it's just ridiculous but going back to the episode the newspaper clipping highlights this ridiculous argument that flashes me back to I think it was 2012 when the Dark Knight Rises shooting happened. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go on a kind of a soapbox thing here, but back in 2012 when the Dark Knight Rises tragedy happened, I saw someone on Facebook claim that if someone had a gun in there, maybe less people would have died. Like, this is like a day or two after the shooting happened. And go fuck yourself if that's your immediate reaction to something like that. Like, seriously. Like, I mean that with... Like, I mean that wholeheartedly. Like, think for a second how freaking ludicrous that is. Like, that in that situation, the gunman had smoke bombs. Uh, it was a dark theater, opening night of The Dark Knight Rises, so it was filled with people. Um, if some dipshit with a handgun tried to play hero, there is a good chance they would have caused more damage or death, or more injury or more death. Just because you have a gun doesn't make you a fucking action star or superhero. Like, get a grip on reality. Um... And I say that because, like, in, like, this is, I don't know, the, the newspaper clipping in this episode is kind of an interesting kind of thing that made me flash back to that because it's the same kind of thing. Like, oh, thank God that, you know, Jeff Stork was in the neighborhood with a gun, um, to save, uh, to, to save the neighborhood and everything when he was there to kill someone, uh, potentially. Like, it's just, it's such an interesting thing and it just kind of reminded me vaguely of, um, that thing. So anyway, in closing on that, uh, a lot of people I know support the second amendment and are gun enthusiasts. Like tiny is a huge gun enthusiast guy, uh, not a huge gun enthusiast. He, he likes guns. Um, 
sadly, there like I I know people who are responsible gun owners and everything. Um, sadly, there are a number of people, however, that I know or have known who are gun enthusiasts, but are also some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my entire life, and they absolutely should not be around firearms. And it's just. And also just, uh, it's it's a whole thing. Anyway, um, I don't know if I'm going to even keep that in the episode. But, um, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't I don't know. So we get the denouement of the episode. Uh, Jeff is signing the divorce papers. Um, Anne has made concessions because, you know, he saved her life, um, potentially. Uh, and the university is offering him the department chair um, or the department head the head of the department decision i think department chair um whatever the terminology is and uh then we get a shot of a courier delivering the gun back to him um a re um reflection or a uh um a uh call back to the early scene where he gets the gun back uh via the mail so Jeff takes it to Cayuga Lake and throws it in and it's a big triumph. Yay. Awesome. So like, that's, that's cool. Like, I, I like that. He's, he's able to put it behind him. He's in a better place. He's come through the, he's come through the tunnel of darkness and he is, he is, uh, he's a new man. He's, you know, he has made it through without, um, with, without any, you know, lasting effects or anything. He's, he's, he's going to be okay. I like, I like that a lot. Um, because this is a, this is an example of the episode of an episode where the character learns from his experience in the twilight zone and is a better person because of it. He's not horribly punished or anything. It's, it's a good ending for this episode and for this character. Um, it's also worth mentioning that he didn't fire the gun. Um, the gun automatically went off. So, um, read into that what you will. I didn't really read much into it or anything, but I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that um, before I end this episode. So, uh, the end of the episode comes, and it's an ominous ending. The gun washes ashore, and two kids pick it up and start playing with it. Uh, the bullet, uh, they pick up a bullet with a kid's name on it. Uh, one of the kids is reading the Miranda rights to him, and they just play with it while the camera pans to Jordan Peele. And the closing narration comes, and here it is from Jordan Peele. Human beings have a funny way of treating things like people. But today, you'll learn that as long as objects are valued more than lives, tragedy will forever be manufactured here in the Twilight Zone. So I like what he said. He says that human beings have a funny way of treating things like people. And uh, he says like something about um, something about how uh, tragedy will, will always strike when we, uh, value objects over human lives. And I think that that's a really strong sentiment to, to end on here. Um, I feel like maybe it wasn't necessarily communicated that well. I, it was communicated pretty well because he's putting more value over, um, the object than, than of li- uh, over lives. Like Jeff didn't do anything with the gun that was like dangerous or abhorrent except for playing with it in a very un, uh, irresponsible way and kind of flirting with the idea of using it to harm others or kill others. Um, but the way that Peel mentions that, you know, tragedy will strike or injury will come about or whatever. Um, as long as we value objects over, 
uh, as long as objects are valued more than lives. Um, that hints at, you know, something horrible is going to happen with these kids. Um, and I'm glad that they didn't show it or show, like, do that. I could have seen, like, it would have been, oh, it would have been particularly haunting if, like, the episode ended kind of the similar way of the uh, siren in replay. If, like, as it cut to black, you just hear a gunshot. Um, ah, that would have been really interesting. I don't know how I would have felt about it. I probably would have, I probably would have liked it. Um, it would have been kind of disturbing, but that's kind of not, not what the episode was really going for. Well, not what the episode was really communicating as an overarching thing. Like the episode was about Jeff and his experience with the gun going through the twilight zone and him coming, him coming out ahead. So I think it would have undercut that kind of somewhat upbeat ending for Jeff if they would have ended it with that ominous kind of gunshot. So, Overall thoughts on the Blue Scorpion, one of the strongest episodes of the season, in my opinion. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think the writing was some of the season's strongest, and Chris O'Dowd was absolutely terrific. And I love that the that the season and the episode was about a magical object story um, that was told. Like I just, I I really like it, and I really like how it was told in this episode. And finally, we get an episode that isn't politicizing a current issue. Um, too on the nose, the way that I did in my stupid rant that I don't know if I'm even keeping because it makes me sound like a moron. But um, in that respect, that it's not politicizing a current issue, in that respect, it really feels like a genuine Twilight Zone episode. And I, I mean that with the highest of praise. Like, it feels like it belongs in the Twilight Zone canon. And it's just it's just a really well well done episode, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, I guess that's all I've got for the Blue Scorpion. Um, I've got one more episode left to review, guys. Blurry Man, uh, that'll be coming up, uh, sometime next week. I don't, I don't know what day, but, uh, following that, I will have Tiny on for, uh, our season, uh, recap, review, uh, discussion thing, um, soon after that. So I think we're gonna record that next week. Um, yeah, so having said all that, of course, let me know what you thought of this episode of The Twilight Zone and of this episode of Anthology. Um, yeah, let me know what you thought uh, of everything. You know you know where to find me. Shoot me an email. Matt at, shoot me an email. Uh, Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Uh, hit up the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash OVAnthologyPod. Or uh, just tweet me at OVAnthologyPod. Um, yeah, so next up... Like I said, I'm going to review Blurry Man. And then on the main feed, um, here in probably a couple days or so, I don't know, um, I'm going to be reviewing The Silence. I'm super excited about that. I've said it before. Um, can't wait to talk about that episode. And then after that, uh, we're coming up to the end of season two of the original series Twilight Zone. I'm so excited about that. I'm excited to see some of the episodes here at the end of season two. And I'm just really excited to finally reach the end of season two. Um, I'm really excited also to get to shadow play, which I'll talk about when I review the silence. But I think what I'm going to do since shadow play was remade in 1980 in the 1980s Twilight Zone, obviously I'm going to forego my, um, science fiction theater bonus review there and uh just do a bonus review of the 1980s version of shadow play but what i think i'm going to do is i'm going to kind of change it up a little bit i'm going to review the original series episode but i'm going to research and record that review in a vacuum and then once i finish recording that review i'm actually going to go and that's when i'm going to watch the 1980s remake um that way that way my review of the original series version isn't muddled by um the remake 
And uh, I think that'll be a fun little experiment. So look forward to that in the coming weeks. Of course, uh, still have Black Mirror on the back burner. Um, it is going to come after the um, after uh, these episodes of the Twilight Zone are reviewed for on on my end. So look forward to that. I might uh, try to get Tiny to do a just season episode season review on um, the obsessive viewer in a week or two. So if you're really hankering for my thoughts on. Uh, Black Mirror, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer podcast, and um, I'll be having a uh, maybe a review of those three episodes, like just kind of a broad review of it, um, and then uh, come back here for the deep dive in the coming weeks. Um, so yeah, so having said all that, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to go ahead and play um, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, pre-recorded outro, and uh, I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a good one. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah!